Welcome to the New Faces of Democracy podcast, the show featuring ordinary people doing extraordinary things to stand up for our democracy. I'm your host, Nancy Bynum. This podcast celebrates people who have transformed their lives since 2016 and are transforming our political landscape by organizing, running for office, and generally stepping outside of their comfort zones. I hope their stories will inspire you to take action on your own. Head on over to newfacesofdemocracy.org for easy links to subscribe, follow on social media, and to get more inspiration. On this episode, I'm speaking with Jessica Alter and Chris Aaron Canary of Tech for Campaigns. After Trump's Muslim ban in 2017, tech entrepreneur Jessica Alter couldn't take it anymore and asked a few of her fellow tech workers if they were interested in volunteering their skills to help Democratic campaigns. And Tech for Campaigns was born. Tech for Campaigns is now the permanent tech and digital arm for Democrats, offering access to best-in-class talent with their 15,000 volunteers focusing on state races. Jessica and Chris Aaron, a state director in charge of flipping the Texas State House, speak with me about why they focus on state races, catching up with the Republicans who are 8 to 10 years ahead on tech and digital, and why no matter what happens on Election Day, they both know they will have left it all on the field. And now, here's my conversation with Jessica Alter and Chris Aaron Canary. Jessica Alter and Chris Aaron Canary, welcome to New Faces of Democracy. Hey, Nancy. Nice to meet you. Thanks for having us, Nancy. Okay, Jessica, let's start with you. You are the founder of Tech for Campaigns. What does Tech for Campaigns do and why did you start it? Let me answer that in reverse order. In pre-2016, like probably most people listening to this conversation, I was not really politically involved. I would say I was inclined, but not involved. And in 2017... After I had had exited another startup, I had been traveling, I came back and in quick succession, it was the first Muslim ban and a series of terrible executive orders punctuated by that first Muslim ban. And at that point, I hit a wall with my frustration and my anger. And I felt like I needed to do something that made me feel better than yelling at people who already agreed with me on social media. So like Chris Aaron, I had been in tech, just normal consumer and enterprise style startups for 13 years. I had been early at companies and started some of my own and everyone I knew was in tech. So I felt like that was the place I could help the most. And we had just started hearing rumblings that Trump had really wiped the floor with us in this arena in 2016. And my co-founders and I said, okay, well, what if we could get our friends at the time, it was pretty humble thinking to give their skill sets in addition to money. And that was just who we knew. Everyone we know is in tech or digital. And then a few days, we had 700 people say, yes, I would want to do that. And so we, we really started the organization. Fast forward to today, the idea behind Tech for Campaigns and the mission is really to be the permanent tech and digital arm for Democrats. Because as we can talk about later, there's a huge hole there. The Democrats are maybe eight to 10 years behind when it comes to tech and digital. For all the excitement slash infamy that digital advertising gets in politics, in 2018, for every donor dollar, only three to five cents went to digital. So it's really a TV and mail world, even though people are spending eight to nine hours a day online. And Tech for Campaigns is building the permanent tech and digital arm for Democrats by offering 
access to best-in-class talent, which is a hybrid model of our full-time team and almost 15,000 tech volunteers. Tools, which are built by our engineering and product team and training, which we offer in the campaigns and states that we go into. And a lot of our focus on our strategy for the last three years has been to focus on helping at the state legislative level, which is the unique and important concentric circle overlap between being incredibly strategic and incredibly ignored. And so the states really control most of the issues that society honestly cares about. And as the cherry on top, they also control federal redistricting. So our mission has really been, let's build this tech and digital arm that subsists cycle to cycle, that doesn't get broken down, where we don't throw tech away, which is what we've been doing as a party. But the strategy has been to really focus on the state legislatures. And in the last three and a half years, we've helped over 500 campaigns with over 600 projects on this front. And Chris Aaron, what was your path to tech for campaigns? Similar to Jessica, before 2016, I did very light political work. So I remember walking into the field office in an abandoned mall here in LA to texting for Hillary and thinking to myself, I could do so much more with the skills that I have having worked in tech for the past 14 years. I worked in marketing teams for Dollar Shave Club and Headspace. And if I could make an impact in politics instead of selling razors or other wonderful products, I thought it could be really worthwhile. So I'm actually sad that I I didn't learn about Tech for Campaigns until 2020, but I'm very grateful that I did. I remember waking up the day after the 2016 election and getting in my car to drive to work and calling my mom, which I used to do every day when I had a commute. She lives in Portland. And we picked up the phone and I said, hi. And she said, hi. We both had trembling voices. And then we just cried for a good minute before we could talk to one another. I think the 2016 election was so the word that I want to use. It was upending. It really proved to me and I think to everyone that our institutions are fragile and we can't make assumptions about what's going to happen in politics. I remember watching the the 538 line graph of probability of who was going to win crossing over on election night, and I just drank a bunch and fell asleep at eight o'clock, hoping that when I woke up the next morning, it wouldn't be true. So I wanted to do something. I wanted to find a way and an outlet to make an impact. And thankfully, Tech for Campaigns was there, and Jessica was kind enough to bring me on the team. And what do you do there? So I am a state director. I am one of, are there six or seven of us now, Jessica? I think seven. One of seven, I'm the state director for Texas, which I am very grateful to be the state director from Texas. The campaigns that I'm working on actually worked across 25 different campaigns this election cycle, 25 different candidates, and currently working on 21 projects. By the time the election is over, I will have completed 64 projects, which is a staggering amount to think about. Each team is about three to four volunteers, so I work directly with those volunteers. But mainly my job is to get out of the way and make sure that the volunteers have everything that they need to be successful, whether that's me telling them what is important in the state that week, 
since I meet with the Texas HDCC every week to go over where we are with our candidates and what new things are coming down the pike, whether it's new voter suppression efforts in Texas, which I'm sure you've heard about, or new money coming in on the, the Republican side that we need to be made aware of. Jessica's completely right about the amount of money Republicans have to spend broadly and specifically on digital compared to what the Dems have. So really making sure that I can do my best to get as much fundraising dollars in the door for our candidates as possible, but also on the digital ad side, because right now we are mainly doing digital ads, email marketing and texting, but on the digital ad side, we're spending the campaign's money. So making sure that every dollar is spent efficiently, which is where my tech background comes into play, and that we are performing well so that these ads and these emails are hitting our goals, our open rates, and, and all those important metrics. I think that that is the benefit of Tech for Campaigns for these candidates. They're running small, unattractive races that not a lot of people know about. And even just thinking about it from an ads perspective, some of these candidates might have a $10,000 digital advertising budget. And an agency is going to take that 10000 and take 1500 of it for their agency fees. That's a lot of money to lose that you can't actually spend on reaching a voter. So what we can do is we can step in and we have digital marketers that work at Google and Honey and these huge tech companies who are really smart, extremely talented, more talented than me in some cases, and they can get in and really make these incredible campaigns work and they do it because they want to defend democracy they have progressive views and they love the candidates that they work for and they get to meet them which is really inspiring these people are incredibly inspiring and hopefully people that I will know for the rest of my life because they're just pretty incredible and have you heard any stories from local organizers is there a palpable difference to these campaigns i can't imagine what they were doing before versus what they're doing now with you guys yeah absolutely to give you an example there's one candidate that we just started working with that was introduced to us whose team were sending maybe one email a week and not heavily fundraising off of their email list and our team of volunteers joined and had an email ready before we even met with the campaign because it's kind of late in the cycle to be spinning up a new team. And they sent an end of month fundraiser out and raised over $3,400 in one email. And now are sending three to four. And as we get closer to the election, five, six, seven emails a week. That's not something that their staff could have sustained by themselves. So now this representative has additional money coming in that they would not have had if they had not decided to come and work with us or spun up any kind of email team. And just to give, I think, listeners a sense, state-led races, especially house races, they probably raise between, depending on the state, I mean, Texas has no limits, but depending on the state, between fifty dollars and $500,000. That's it. Very few get beyond that. And so $3,400 is a lot of money. Democrats, you mean? Yeah, Democrats. $3,400 is a lot of money to like one of my candidates in Florida, you know, he has a $165,000 budget. It's a competitive race. That's a competitive race. So this is real money to them and they wouldn't be able to get otherwise, or they'd probably have to pay someone half of to get it. You know, on the flip side, just to give an example, 
flipping a state chamber, a house or a Senate, I don't think there is a more impactful thing you could flip because they're deciding on voting rights at the state level. They're deciding on immigration. They're deciding on healthcare. They're deciding on education. They're deciding on a woman's right to choose. Plus, they're going to decide on how federal congressional lines are drawn. And what the Republicans decided 15 years ago is, wait, we can get all those things and we can just spend like $165,000 per race? We're in. They're really running things in an ROI mindset that I find is often missing for Democrats. And so the Republicans are really focused on state legislatures and have been for at least 15 years. And the reason is because they're cheap and really impactful. And it's why we've, we're like still crawling out of, we lost a thousand seats at the state legislative level between 2009 and 2017. We just, we weren't paying attention. I think that they probably had a really easy time of winning those races because we just weren't paying attention for so long. And now it'll be really interesting to see. I mean, obviously in 2018, we saw some really big impacts, but I think in 2020, I think we're going to see more. I mean, what does it look like in Texas? How many seats do you have to flip there? We have to flip nine and defend 12. For which? For the House? For the Texas State House. Correct. And are you going for the Senate or is that not something you can do this cycle? Not in Texas. I think that's, it's an important thing for our listeners to understand the importance of being able to scale operations if you help state legislatures is absolutely vital. If you go in and help two or three races in the state ledge level, it's unlikely you're going to make a dent. So like even in Texas, we, we couldn't go in and just help nine. We're helping 26 because we have to help all the defense as well. And some extra just in case. <laughs> That's unheard of. And the way that we do that just to like elucidate the model is Chris Aaron and basically seven or six of her colleagues run the states. And we have 10 states this year that are where we're deploying talent. We have 10 others that use our technology. And we can give someone like Chris Aaron, who has a decade and a half of tech experience at the best tech companies there are, we can pull her into politics, which I think she even said she probably wouldn't normally wouldn't do. We can also pull all these other volunteers from the commercial world into politics, teach them what they need to know and share what we've done. But basically we have 26 races in Texas and one full-time employee. So the leverage that we as an organization have is really unheard of. How do you choose which races to support? Yeah, we actually first choose state chambers to support. We have a data team that we like to say does the boring version of 538. It's not boring to us, but it's boring to other people, which is the state ledge level um, scores every district in every state. And then we roll that up and we say, where can we have an impact in the next two to three cycles? So not just this year. I think one of the reasons the Democrats have ceded control is because they are so narrowly focused on what can we win this year. And we were in Texas in 2018. Of course, it wasn't flippable in 2018, but we decided, well, yeah, we can't only help you the year you're flippable. It's a two to three cycle process to flip a chamber. And what the Democrats seem to keep doing is like, well, let's just help the year that they need help. 
and that they're actually flippable, but that's how you never win because no one's helping those races when they need help. So we definitely feel like it's important to make the investment early. So we'll look, where do we think we can make a difference in the next two to three cycles? And difference means flipping, defending. So maybe they have a slim majority or helping to break a super majority like in Missouri. Yeah. And I would just add to that, that we have candidates who came back in 2020 that we're working with again, the cycle we have, and many of the candidates that are running ran in 2018 and lost, but decided that they wanted to try again. And we have one candidate, Joanna Katnack, that lost by less than 300 votes. So yeah, there are some really tight races. We have a really good shot. I mean, I don't want to jinx anything, knock on wood, but we have a really good shot. If I wake up on November 4th and I see that nine of my candidates made it, it doesn't have to be my candidates, literally, it could be any of them. <laughs> I don't need help, but I will feel so great and be so thrilled for them because they're all so remarkable. That is really, really exciting. Once we figure out where the chambers are, we actually go in, and as Chris Aaron said, she works with the Texas House Dems. They're the caucus. The caucuses actually control the campaigns, not the state party. So we'll go talk to the caucuses, make sure they want us in there. I think it's there's sometimes sort of a myth like, oh, these people from TAC are just parachuting in and like helping. But no, we're partnering strategically with the caucuses. We know what's going on. The state directors meet with the caucus minimum weekly probably talk to them much more. That's one of the roles of the state director is to be the choreographer for, they're taking information from everyone and disseminating it in the right way. And then they choose the races or they guide you between that and your data. Actually, we share the model with them, which sometimes they haven't had a, like they know themselves which areas are most likely to need help, but we share a model with a data model with them. The model's totally quantitative. So it's actually really a nice partnership in that we'll bring a quantitative view and they'll bring a qualitative view. So for instance, in Texas, if we said, okay, here's the 25 races we think need help. They might say 24 isn't doing what they need to do right now. So we're not ready to help them, but actually 26 is an awesome candidate and we really want you to help them. And they will introduce us directly to the candidate. What kind of candidates do you support like demographically? We support anyone who we think needs help, but Chris Aaron can talk about Texas, but generally speaking, we way over index on women, minorities, and first-time candidates. In 2018, we're still, as, as we just mentioned, we literally are still adding candidates. But in 2018, close to 65% of our candidates were women or minorities. And I think just over 55% were first-time candidates. In Texas, Chris, you know the stats in Texas best. Yeah, and so Texas candidates are very diverse. We only have five, I'm only personally working with five white men. <laughs> Everyone else is a woman or a person of color, but 70% of our candidates are women. I think it's 56% are people of color. We have three LGBTQ plus candidates, two of which, if they are elected, will be the first openly gay Latino state house representatives. So that's pretty exciting. Eric Olguin and Lorenzo Sanchez, both exciting races. I think to be in Texas and be a Democrat is pretty remarkable. And it's a very diverse state. So the way the Democrats are, and we're generally more representative of what the real world looks like. And I think that Texas is a really good model for that. Jessica, you talked about 2018. How did that go for you guys, your candidates? 
Oh, it went amazingly well. And so did 2019 where we're in Virginia with 40 candidates. So, I mean, we don't, I mean, I can tell you the percentage who won, but we don't look just at who won as our key performance indicator because then we wouldn't take on difficult races. You asked about what are the demo of our candidates. Really, the demo is across the board, although I think because of where we work and who we're helping, we tend to be more women and minorities. But everyone's in a, we're not deciding like, is this district royal blue or light blue? That's not what we're deciding. We're always in a district where it's basically purple or pink. We're trying to help it be light blue. So those are the kind of candidates we're helping. They just by nature, they need to be pretty centrist because that's what wins in those districts. So we don't get involved in democratic primaries and we don't really get pulled into like the safe districts because that's not where we feel like our time and resources are best spent. Between 2018 and 2019, we helped flip three chambers, including the Virginia House and Senate in 2019, where we were actually the primary tech and digital provider for the campaigns and the caucuses. And we helped break two supermajorities, Pennsylvania and Michigan as well. And actually in Texas, we had the biggest pickup. We had nine candidates and all nine won. So just to my point about the two to three cycle flip course in 2018, no one thought they had a chance, but they picked up nine seats. So I think it is possible. Okay. So you talked about breaking super majorities. Talk for just a minute about why that's important and then also why you've chosen Missouri this year. I think we have a blog post that's kind of old on our blog, but I think it's like super majorities are where like the worst things go to happen. <laughs> and in many states, if the Republicans have a super majority, the governor can't even veto. So you just have no. And that's assuming the governor's a Democrat. Well, that's assuming the governor's a Democrat, like in North Carolina, even in Michigan. So it's just where like the worst things go to happen because like there's no checks. There's just no checks to anything. Missouri, we were actually there in 2018. It's a tough state. It's trending red. It's the center of, I think, a woman's right to choose being challenged. And we just felt like we needed to continue to try there. Just candidly, I feel like it's a bit abandoned by, it's sort of been written off and we didn't feel like that was a good decision. And so we're trying to help build a wall, I would say, so that there is a backstop. I like that. I like that you guys are taking on the tough cases, not the slam dunks. If you have a slam dunk, like just how blue is it going to be? We're not there. That's great. How are you feeling about 2020 in states other than Texas? Sounds like fingers crossed, but pretty good. I mean, I feel good, but you can tell I don't come from politics because I don't prognosticate or pretend to know what's going to happen. That's not my thing. I feel good that to use Chris Aaron's term, like we're going to be able to say that we left it all on the field. I think everyone is working just insanely hard, but not for the sake of it in a smart way. And we've taken on many more races this year, but I also think we started much earlier because of COVID. So we're actually much more embedded in a lot of the states than we ever have been. COVID has definitely upended things and changed the game for a lot of people. And in some senses, necessity is the mother of adoption because digital and tech are really tertiary to mail and TV in the political world. And this year, there wasn't room 
to wait till October to start your digital game just wasn't possible. And I think people started realizing that maybe not exactly when we did, but earlier. And so I feel like we've really done all we can and, and pushed as hard as we can. So you talked about the fact that you didn't have a background in politics, and neither of you did. Yet here you are talking a really good game, throwing around all the buzzwords. You sound super knowledgeable. I mean, that's a big transition. How did you do that? And plus, you seem to be creating your own data. We decided pretty early on, on the, we don't use all our own data. Of course, we use the voter file. But early on, I didn't understand how the other models worked, not because they didn't work. It's just I couldn't see behind it. And I have a background in data. So I just felt like we needed to understand how that was working and understand how we were doing something so core to the organization as picking campaigns. I just did not feel like I could outsource that. And so that was really key. I'm a tech entrepreneur. So getting into a new industry, I always feel like you can figure it out as you go. I'm sure I seemed super newbie when I started. So much more so than I realized because you don't know what you don't know. But Corsair and all the state directors, they come on being like intense experts in digital marketing and tech, but we really help teach them politics. But obviously one of the things that we look for is, okay, can this person like get up to speed on this very quickly? And with Corsairan and others, we just felt like, yeah, that's that's someone who's going to do that. And partially, like, you have to want to do that because we can lead you to water, but you have to, like, drink yourself. So I'll let her answer how she's done it. Yeah, I've always been really interested in politics. I was a political science minor in college. And I don't know if I still have all the lingo down when it comes to politics. Jessica's definitely more versed in that than I am. But... I think that after you learn the basics of the things that you need to know to work in this, I don't want to call it an industry, but in this field, I guess, you kind of want to take that hat off and put your tech hat back on. We in tech, we are digitally driven people. We understand data in a really important way. If we didn't, we would lose our jobs. So to apply a almost consumer focus to this political work that we're doing, I think actually gives us an advantage. Jessica likes to joke that you get an email. I'm sure everyone listening and yourself, Nancy, have gotten a million political emails. I'm sure some of them came from me. (laughs) But you get an email and you open it up and it's this novel of different colored fonts and different bolded things, just really chaotic looking. There are six buttons asking you for different donation amounts. And if I would have created an email like that for my boss at any of the other jobs that I'd had, he'd be like, you're, he, of course, you are crazy. (laughs) This is way too many calls to action. This flies in the face of what we know works. Why would you do something this way? And so For people coming into this work, volunteers or state directors, we get to say, we to look at something and say, that's not best practice. Everyone's been doing it that way because everyone's been doing it that way. But let's test not doing it that way. And let's test doing it the way a consumer product would and see if it can perform better. In the same sense, we look at the, the numbers a little bit differently, right? So when we're trying to find what I like to call pockets of goodness on people's email lists, what's digging into it and looking at it. I look at it from what we call an LTV perspective, lifetime value. 
what's the average amount that someone's going to give across the for one candidate across a campaign? Maybe they donate on average two times for a total of $100. Great. Now, only 10% of your list has, has reached that. Can we find the people who have only donated once and get them to donate a second time? Can we find the people who have maybe donated twice but aren't at the average LTV? So I'm looking at it from the way, in the same way that I would look at the work that I do for consumer client, but I'm applying it to this political work. And it's been really successful. And I think it's our, our advantage and our edge and what we can bring to the projects that we work on that a candidate definitely couldn't do for themselves and not disparage other groups that do this work for hire or for pay, but we get to look at it with fresh eyes. We have that benefit and that advantage. Yeah. And you can think outside of the political box, you know, the way, well, we do it this way because we always did it this way. And that way, like you said, those emails, just like they give you a headache as soon as you open them. It's just like, you can't delete fast enough. (laughs) I would just add to that, that part of the benefit of our scale and this just in 2020, we have 222 campaigns. So we have scale, which means we have a lot of data. So to go back to the data, we're collecting the data, not to say, oh, this like individual is good or not good, but to say like, okay, here's the things that worked and didn't work. And then every year we do a very intense, what we call postmortem to say, okay, what worked in email and what didn't? Actually, some of them, these reports we publish and they're on our website, our ads report and our texting report, what worked and what didn't. And then that gets folded back into our internal resources that all of the course, state directors, but volunteers also get access to. So there's basically playbooks for what's working and what's not working. And we're constantly sharing that not only during the cycle, but we do a very intense update each year afterwards. So part of the goal of being this permanent tech and digital arm is when November 4th comes or when we have decisions, we don't break down and lose the knowledge and lose the tools. We're actually building something to last so that you can have a sustainable competitive advantage. So what would you consider some of your biggest success stories so far? Any particular campaigns stick out to you? For me personally, our biggest success story pre the 2020 decisions is Virginia. And again, it was a two-cycle flip. It's a little bit emotional for me because it's where we started in 2017. As an example of knowing nothing, I was on the phone with the then head of the Virginia House Caucus which in Virginia is called the House of Delegates. And he kept saying, House of Delegates, House of Delegates. And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. And I had literally never heard that term before. I did not know what a House of Delegates was. (laughs) So just to give you a sense of where I was three years ago, so I was sort of faking it and Googling House of Delegates. Luckily, we were not on Zoom because it was 2017. (laughs) And so we started there with about 12 campaigns. I think they had their biggest pickup in over a hundred years in 2017, missed flipping the house by really one vote or tying by one vote, which was, which was tough. But then we came back in 2019 and the house, it was also the Senate was up in 2019 and we were really running things on the digital side for them and the house caucus, but also 38 campaigns. So they asked us to be the primary digital provider. So that was obviously like a nice, thing to progress into. But of course, the awe-inspiring part is that when they flipped, within 100 days, they passed 
gun safety measures, which they couldn't even get to the floor 90 days before that. They are trying to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. They've, I think there's a, a Washington Post article right now in the last month about how Virginia is doing voting right. Well, that's because they like fixed their voter ID laws when they flipped blue. This, that's not because it was right all the time. And so when you just think about the impact on and the number of individuals that, that those laws have had, it really chokes you up a bit, actually. Now, you talked about 2016, where the you said basically the Republicans wiped the floor with us. How do you think we compare today? Contact and digital. <laughs> yeah. Well, and Trump. But how does that compare? Do you see a real difference today, like thanks to the work you guys are doing? Are we still catching up? Yes, we're still catching up. We're making progress, but we're definitely still catching up. And both in terms of tech and digital and the importance of states, we're definitely still catching up. We're trying to shift his mindsets. It's not a quick thing. You can't change mindsets all that quickly. Also, there's just an incentive problem, which is that like all of this media is run by consultants. Consultants get a percentage of the spend. So it's very hard to tell people hey, I know I was going to give you like a million dollars for my TV ads and you can get 15%, but instead I'm going to spend 500K on digital because, and this is a big campaign, obviously, because like I can do more with less there and you're going to have to work much harder to make it work and also you're going to make less. But like it's a better ROI for the candidate, but that's a hard thing to imagine a human being suggesting. So this, the incentives are, are not aligned. Maybe just each of you can tell me, as we start to wrap this up, what the journey's been like for you personally. Where, how you feel today? How has it transformed you? Where you were feeling in 2016, how you're feeling 2020? I feel like we're going to have a therapy session now. <laughs> I think what I hate the most about Trump getting elected, I mean, there are so many so many things to hate about it. It's that our daily lives have really been impacted in that. I mean, it's politics impacts everyone's daily lives, but it is just ubiquitous in the news. It's every five seconds. It's, there's no space to, from anxiety or stress around politics. I think that a lot of us, and I'm speaking from a privileged point of view, there aren't systemic things that affect my day-to-day life, right? But for some of us, we were, when Obama was president, we didn't have to worry about things like healthcare or our right to choose or our safety. Obviously, sending young kids to school and being afraid about gun safety is definitely top of mind. We have, we're living in a climate crisis that gives me great anxiety that I have to actively manage. <laughs> but what Tech for Campaigns has given me is the ability to put that anxiety away, knowing that every day I'm getting up and I'm doing something. Doing something about something that gives you stress or anxiety is the best way out of that hole. And I feel I feel that the work that we're doing is really important work. It's what my mom would call righteous work. And I get to log on every day and chat with people in tech who are passionate about politics and we can, when something in Texas happens, like Greg Abbott taking, is it Greg Abbott, Governor Abbott, 
I don't care to know his name because he's awful, but he takes away drop-off box locations for mail-in ballots. And the first thing I do is I go into the Texas Slack channel and everyone's in there complaining and commiserating. And when good things happen, we can all share in those successes together. I think in a normal job where you don't work in politics, you don't talk about politics with your coworkers because you don't want to hate your coworkers <laughs> for their views, which unfortunately is, is where we're at in 2020. But it's really refreshing to be amongst people who share your values not only, but are willing to take time away from their jobs and from their families to do this work. It's the best thing I could be doing during this election cycle. And I'm really grateful that I get to do it. Because I know that when I wake up on November 4th, as Jessica said, I will have left it all in the field. What about you, Jessica? I'll just say, and like, I don't know if people are going to Google Chris Aaron, but like, we're very grateful that she's doing it. Like, trust me, the the recruiting process was very swift. (laughs) I think just the way I was raised was like, don't talk about it, just do it. The way I would describe it now is a bias towards action. And... You know, I can only sit in meetings for so long because I'm just like, okay, we've been talking about this long enough. Are we going to do something? And so I think that is really the seed out of which Tech for Campaigns was born. And I'm grateful, not just that I get to do it, but that I feel like other people had the same feeling and are willing to give up time and energy away from jobs, away from work, away from family, like Chris Aaron said, to like make a huge difference. He said like, what has this journey been like? It's not been like anything I imagined because I did not imagine doing this. This was not planned, but I feel like I, I do have a much greater understanding and I'm really humbled by the number and quality of people that want to be involved. And I think if there's any silver lining from not just Trump being elected, but what Trump being elected has exposed, it is that people understand, or at least a lot more people understand that you cannot just sit on the sidelines all the time. So I think that's the thing I'm most grateful for. And I hope with Tech for Campaigns, we're giving at least a subset of people a way to channel their energy and to be really permanently involved. Speaking of getting involved, how can those of us like me who are not techie, but what can we do to help? Is there anything? Glad you asked, Nancy. (laughs) By the way, techie, I think is a little bit of a misnomer. We have people on campaigns writing copy and designing. You don't have to be like writing code. Actually, I think digital marketers and designers are potentially the most in demand of the volunteers. So you can go to the website, techforcampaigns.org any volunteer right there you do not need to email us we will email you yeah we will email you. we have a whole matching system that will match you and of course also we're a 527 nonprofit so we're supported by the generosity of our donors so you can go to that website and donate as well and as i said we're just i would say double high roi because of the campaigns were helping our high ROI, but also our model is such high leverage that for several million dollars, we can help 222 races. It's kind of, again, it's unheard of. I think those are the big things. 
Well, great. Jessica Alter and Chris Aaron Canary, thank you so much for the work you're doing at Tech for Campaigns. You guys are just very inspiring. And I'm so grateful for people like you who take their incredible skills and devote it to something that helps all of us. So thank you. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much, Nancy. It's a pleasure, Nancy. Thank you. Thank you for listening. New Faces of Democracy is created and produced by me, Nancy Bynum. And in addition to being the host, I'm also the CEO, the CFO, and the administrative assistant. If you enjoyed this episode, please help New Faces of Democracy grow by subscribing on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're looking for more inspiration, check out my other profiles at newfacesofdemocracy.org and follow New Faces of Democracy on Instagram and Facebook. Facebook.